Hi there, it's Nick here. Thanks so much for your continued support of the Nick Luck Daily Podcast. Wherever you consume your podcast, it is great to have you with us. I would alert you again to the racing app which is your one-stop shop and the easiest place now to download the show each and every morning as soon as it's ready. Many of you are doing so already, and that's not just because you can get access to all 880 episodes of this show, and very easily as well, but you can also watch live races. You can watch all the replays, and you can stream in the card with an active Fitstairs account. So do download it now, uh, the racing app. It's your one-stop shop and you will be able to catch up on all the previous episodes of your favourite daily racing podcast. You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Happy New Year. Monday, January the 1st, 2024. And off we roll for another year of daily podcasts. Uh, Great to have you with us. Thank you for all your support during 2023. Uh, And we will continue, hopefully, to keep you informed and entertained in the weeks and months to come. Uh, Nicky Henderson is going to do just that in a few moments' time. He's given me chapter and verse on Constitution Hill, on Shishkin, on James Bowen, on Jericho de Reponay, on Will Mount. And it's quite interesting, actually, what he says about Shishkin and what might have led to that departure uh, in the in the King George. Anyway, he is sounding a little better. He had to miss racing at Newbury on Saturday, which we will talk about in a little while. And he's off to Cheltenham today, which is where I, of course, will find the Racing Post's senior writer, Lee Mottishead, who always makes me feel like a very lazy individual because I'm sitting here in my dressing gown, something you don't want to think about with a cup <laughs> of tea. And Lee is overlooking uh, the delightful um, Cheltenham race course on the first of the 170 premier race days, Lee. Happy New Year. Woohoo! Yes, Happy New Year to you, Nick. Happy New Year to all the podcast listeners. What a joy it is to be here. My beloved was saying to me uh, last night that we've been together for 17 years and he cannot recall a New Year's Day when I haven't left at some ungodly hour uh, and driven up the M4 or M4 to Cheltenham. And I'm here again. Happy to be here, Nick. It is glorious, sunny shining. Uh, the ground is heavy. And I have to say... I am not surrounded by branding for Premier Race Days. Okay, right. So uh, it's a Premier Race Day. You're not surrounded by the new sort of horse's head logo everywhere. I guess Cheltenham will feel that it can quite happily sell itself without any uh, snazzy branding exercise. Um, If you were a race goer today, would you notice anything different? I suspect almost certainly not, Nick. Unless you notice, to be fair, on the race card, uh, which says New Year's Day across it, jump into 2024 with New Year's Day racing. The top of that, there is the Premier Race Day uh, logo. Um, and within the race card, there is a one-page ad for Premier Race Days. But there's nothing in the uh, page one of the race card welcome from uh, the managing director, Ian Renton, or the chair, Martin St. Quinton. There's not really any branding that I can see, Nick, around the race course. John Pollan, the clerk of the course, did say a couple of days ago, that this would be a soft launch here. We know from previous coverage in the Racing Post and on the pod that it has been a rush to get any sort of branding sorted before the launch of Premier Racing. It's been a big criticism from some in the sport that this concept, this new initiative, 
hasn't been as yet marketed or promoted to any great extent. It feels like that here today, Nick, but as you say, this is not a day that needs any help. Cheltenham will expect to get over 30,000 people here today. It has become a bigger and bigger uh, race-goer day, this, for the Jockey Club. It doesn't need much in the way of help. And as things have turned out, it's probably not in many ways an ideal way to launch this initiative, this concept, because so far we have 47 runners on this card. That's the lowest in at least a decade. It hasn't really panned out as organisers would have hoped, but it's Cheltenham, it's sunny, it will be great. Yeah, and one of the key horses running today is Marie's Rock, who won the Rail Keel Hurdle last year, and we'll be hearing from her trainer, uh, Nikki Henderson, in a few moments' time. Well, now, clearly, uh, an awful lot uh, in the industry wants to be positive about the start of premierisation, but it has not come without its issues, without its teething problems, and it hasn't satisfied everybody. And those that, who have lost out most significantly, um, some would argue, are the smaller independent racecourses. Now, you might remember a few months ago, we flagged up Fakenham losing its New Year's Day fixture in favour of Southall, because Southall was putting on more prize money. Um, Sam Bullard, who you may very well know from wearing one of his many other hats, the most high profile of which is his role uh, as the head of uh, Darley's Stallions, um, is also the chair at Fakenham and has got a, a very long and passionate association with the with the Norfolk track uh, and joins me now. Uh, Sam, I, I've heard you speak passionately about many subjects, but Fakenham's very, very dear to your heart and you're upset that you've lost your New Year's Day fixture and it's it's it's. It's getting to you on this first day of 2024, isn't it? Nick, good morning. Um, Happy New Year to you. And thank you so much for having me on. Because and I preface it by saying no one mine is more passionate than me about the state of racing. And the idea of Premier Racing is fantastic. And if we can get it to work and improve the state of the game, then that is absolutely brilliant. It's a holiday. We need to get people racing. We always say that. And we've been racing at Fakenham on New Year's Day for the last six years and um, have had ever-increasing good crowds. And to have it taken away from us today in favour of which which not racing is extremely disappointing for us. Um, And and just uh, under your understanding, how how did this come about? With the fact it looks like that, uh, that the arena racing company wanted to get a fixture at Southall on New Year's Day and being a conglomerate of race courses they had the ability to move money around. It would be great if we could see exactly where this money had come from in order to put on 150 grand race day at Southall which is now not happening but um, I don't want to go into the the whys and wherefores of that. Suffice it to say that there are some fairly cheap race days at other race courses that they own. Okay, and and so Fakenham race tomorrow. How much do you think will come off your bottom line because you've had to move from New Year's Day to the to the subsequent day? Well, we're carrying on with another hundred grand race day tomorrow, and I'm delighted to say that we've got you know for for a Tuesday in January we've got pretty good runners tomorrow. We've got a fantastic um, mare's race. We've got the Cool Roxy race. We've got Alan Blackmore, who's one of our great local trainers, signing his book at the race course tomorrow. And, um, you know, we, we, will have, we will have a good day. And the going is soft today. It might well be good to soft by tomorrow. So, but inevitably, the working year starts tomorrow and we're going to get less people. Um, 
which is which is really sad. But we will keep on going, and you know, we'll we'll do our best. But it's very disappointing not to have any racing for any enthusiast in the east of England today. Right, that was Sam Bullard, who, uh, in addition to his many other roles, is chair at Fakenham Racecourse, very popular North Norfolk venue, gets a a very devoted, loyal local following as well. It might because it's quite a long way from uh, any other. Uh, race course Lee Sam Bullard is a a pretty reasonable guy and is very passionate about the sport passionate about grassroots racing and the opportunity for people to come racing has been denied and I do I do question the wisdom of this one I I realize why the BHA made the decision on the basis that Subtle was putting up more more prize money but it I wonder if it was a rather reductive decision well, it certainly was now, Nick. Now, they haven't got racing at Subtle um, well, today. Um, and, but you, but you, you can see why Fakenham are frustrated. Historically, this is a card that the BHA asked Fakenham to stage, um, but it's a BHA-owned fixture. The BHA, therefore, has to decide who stages that fixture. And when this was all announced back in September, um, that the, the commercial committee had decided that this fixture should go to Subtle not to uh, to fake them. It, it was said that difficult decisions sometimes have to be made and they have to be made with a degree of subjectivity. Now, I think when that sort of decision is made, you will always have people who think it's a good idea or it's a bad idea. Um, I think it's a great shame for Fakenham. They would have had a, a really good attendance there today. And as Sam says, we now move into the working week. So their attendance is bound to be hit. It will have a different feel to it compared to the old days and if you are faking them a grassroots track that really tries hard to put on quality racing with decent prize money you will inevitably and understandably and justifiably feel considerable sympathy well when um at newbury on saturday i saw that nicky henderson wasn't there and somebody said he wasn't feeling very well i thought Yikes, he must feel quite unwell not to be at Newbury for a grade one day when he's got fancied runners. He, he came away with, with several winners as well, which we'll come to in a, in a moment. But, Nicky, are you feeling a bit better? Yeah, I definitely do this morning anyway. We, we decided we're going to set off to the Cotswolds. I mean, isn't it? If I don't last the day, I don't last the day. But I hope we'll be all right. So a nice, nice and bra- bracing day at, uh, at Cheltenham with, with Marie's Rock and Co. Yeah, well, we love her and she's been great. And she won this last year. So it's always been the, the objective, and we've got to run under a belt. I do think she's pretty well, actually. She's hard to beat. Bob Bond is going to be hard to beat. How do you reflect on on the day on on Saturday? I mean, Jericho de Repone, I thought was brilliant. Will Mount obviously was was very disappointing. Did anything come to light with him? Yeah, I mean, we've got we've got issues, and we know what they are, and we'll just have to sort of try and see what we can do about them. Is he is that is is he done for a little bit now? No, no, not necessarily, no. I mean, he's perfectly sound and everything. No, I mean, he hasn't, no, no wheels have fallen off, put it like that. Okay, but there is but there, there, there is something come to light anyway. Yeah, no, exactly. So we'll just have to see if we can do anything about it in the short term or the long term. Okay, and and as for uh, Jericho de Repone, did he tell you anything on, on Saturday that you didn't know already? It was certainly stronger opposition than it had been the first time. It was. I thought, looking at the race, that the, 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 the obvious thing was that there were two horses in there that looked as if they could have a lot more speed than we would have. Um, and they were sort of quick two-milers. Um, 
And so a sprint probably wasn't going to help us, but we didn't want to just go out there and blitz and make the running and try and kill the race off because we'd probably kill him off too. And so we decided to ride him conservatively, even though that was probably the best way to get him beaten. But the, the, the thing that impressed me was his turn of foot because that was superior to the other two horses who definitely have got a turn of foot. And I know, I spoke to David Bass afterwards, and he was... He, he thought his horse was pretty smart at doing that and was quite surprised a horse could do it to him. Mm. It's funny, actually, because I, I, you probably saw, I, I talked to James Bowen, who was deputising for, for Nico de Boinville, who's broken his collarbone. I spoke to James before the race, and he said, well, my instinct is that at some point, he'll probably need a little bit further than, than two miles. And then when he came back in, he had a grin from ear to ear and said, we took off. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you'd have always said, I mean, I put him in the shallow, but it was actually JP and I first were Greek crikey. You got the introduction, just leave it and be done with it and... Um, don't even think about it, which was dead right. But you would have been thinking about, you know, he's just a great big chase, a beautiful horse. He really is a gorgeous looking horse. Um, he's got a lot of class. Um, yeah, to me, I can't say he doesn't. He looks like a two-miler. Yeah. I do think, yeah. And also, it's the it's the tried and tested path for you, isn't it? The the super, for the for your for your best horse, you tend to you tend to go to the the supreme, and it's it's tended to work. So I'm I'm guessing that's where you'll you'll head. Well, I suppose he's going to have to. He's got to run again. There's no doubt about that. And I can't see that he'll run twice more because we very pushed to find two more races. I mean, the obvious one comes up is Haydock, but you have to be. I mean, you know, we all love Haydock, but we all know what Haydock ground is like at this time of the year. Um, you wouldn't pick it for your sort of quite. You know, your horse that you think has got a turn of foot and you know wants to have a nice time. Mm. Um, we'll just have to regroup here and see what we can find. Okay. Not easy. Um, I'm, I mentioned Nico. Uh, that, that's a, a broken collarbone. It looks as though he'll be out for a little while. I know for a long time, and I, I meant again. I mentioned this on Saturday. You've been really wanting to ensure that James Bowen remains a big part of the future of Seven Barrows. Whilst it's obviously unfortunate for Nico, how pleased are you to be giving him opportunities on very high-profile horses? And indeed, will you give him the opportunity on, on every horse that Nico can't ride? Well, it's getting, obviously the owners have got to sanction this, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, yes. I've got no reservations whatsoever. Um, he's been waiting for this opportunity. I'm really sorry for Nico. But like Saturday, um, rode three winners um, and looked the part all, all along. And, um, you know, I mean, I thought he gave Jericho a very good ride because the answer to what we were trying to do is just wait, wait and wait. And it would have been very easy to be tempted to let him sail on two out. And he didn't. He sort of <laughs> took a little pull and said, wait. Um, that was quite brave. So he's got the head. He's got the. He can certainly. He can certainly ride. We all know that. And you know, look at this. And I wish him all the best because he's. You know, he's going to have a. Uh, it's going to be a big three or four weeks for him. And and let's hope it all goes well because mm. he's the most lovely. They're the most lovely family in the world. Um, and I mean, it's really sad that Sean's out now, just when he's got the jockey's title nearly in his grasp. Um, and he's going to be in trouble. So, um, but as I say, they're two great boys, a wonderful attitude to it all, and they're both brilliant riders. We think, we'd imagine, he'll be on Constitution Hill come trials day, unless Nico mends very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you know, don't worry, that isn't, a, trials day isn't a certainty, I must admit, but 
We won't go into that one now. Not there's anything wrong. I just, I don't need to. I don't need to. You know, I'm not going to hang hang my mask. Um, it's it's a possibility. Um, but um, I've, I've never discussed it. Michael's in some far flung country, and that's not at the top of the list of discussions at the moment. That's for sure. Alrighty. Uh, I see no reason why not. Michael's is, you know, Michael's behind everybody here, like he always has been. He was he was very very good on on Boxing Day. I I don't want to leave on a low note. I mean maybe it's not a low note because after all he started and he probably would have won. But if I if I say Shishkin, um, uh, how's he how's he doing? It's interesting. We're still sort of divulging the the facts and the figures, but nobody's got a computer. It is interesting. He's got one very sore sprint on the inside of his off four, and that has almost certainly taken a blow. Well, I would think, you know, he, he was definitely doing something funny with his legs in the air or on landing at that second last. And I suspect he's he's given one 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 foot has hit the inside of that off four, and actually has created a, a considerable. It was it's probably just there anyway, but it was never a he never ever saw him. No, he's very very sore on this splint. Mm. And I think that's got a nasty clonk. Now, whether he clonked it sort of on landing or in before landing, and you, you'd have, you'd have, if somebody had hit you there and it hurts as much as it hurts him now, he'd have probably said, ow, and therefore sort of took his leg away, you know, and then if it didn't follow through the next stride, because, ow, well, he, he's probably lame for one stride on landing. So yeah, so that that could could easily be what caused it. I mean, is it is it a, a fairly easily soluble um, issue to work through? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's 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 settling down now after a few days, and he is sound on it. He was sound on it the next day, but I mean, you press him on it, and he'll tell him to stop doing it. Ow, hmm. horrible, very sore. Um, so I get I guess you just press towards towards going to the gold cup and and, and that's that without a, without a run between now and then i guess you don't want to leave too much to too 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 much to the gods do you no you don't i mean i i really don't know that there's a, there's a big a big big question as to whether to run again you've got the cotswold and you've got the denman they're the only two options really um but do we need to i mean i think you know you can pretty well say that we did actually manage to get him fit for the king george without a run I mean, okay, he didn't prove it out over the last two fence or the last fence that he was fit, but by God, he'd galloped and he didn't look like stopping. So we've got him fit without a run for the King George. So I don't see that getting ready for the Gold Cup without another run's going to be a big problem. Just depends how long this sprint takes to settle down completely. Um. I did ask for two minutes. You've given me ten. Uh, you've been very generous, particularly. But the voice is the voice is warming up quite well. I reckon. It's just very good porridge. Do, are you the sort of person who does New Year's resolutions or not? Uh, well, I've probably broken it already. What do you want to try? <laughs> <laughs> well, don't what discussing running plans for Constitution Hill? You mean? No, no, no. I think everything else has gone out the window already. Um. Uh, don't worry, I haven't had two bottles of wine. Um, Nikki, appreciate your time this morning. I'm glad to hear you sounding in good spirits. Uh, enjoy Cheltenham today um, and have a great 2024. Thanks a lot, Nick. And to you, Happy New Year to you and all your, all your fans.
<laughs> Both of them. <laughs> yeah, Nicky Henderson there, uh, who clearly is is not one hundred percent, but is on his way to to Cheltenham today. You knew he must be feeling pretty crap. Lee, when he didn't turn up to a grade one day at Newbury. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen him not at Newbury before. Well, exactly. Now. I mean, I made the point in my, in my racing post uh, piece of Newbury, in, in which you, of course, featured heavily, um, that it is very rare indeed for Nicky not to be at Newbury, even when Constitution Hill has been running at Newcastle on Fighting Fifth Day last year. Nicky still went to Newbury. He would have gone to Newbury again this year. We did go to Newbury, but he would have done even if Constitution Hill had gone again at Newcastle. He loves the place. He must have been properly poorly. His voice suggests that as well. And he's also had a rough week mixed with um, uh, his black Labrador, maybe having died on Thursday. So he could do with a bit of a Philip. Let's hope he gets one today. Yeah. Um, and interesting comments about Jericho de Repone, who looks almost certain to go the supreme path now. That's not going to be a surprise to anyone. But I think his, his pace surprised a few people the other day. Uh, looks like it could be the Rossington Main at Haydock for him. Umming and ahhing as to whether Shishkin will have another run. But with the, that that very sore splint that Nicky Henderson was talking about, it might be unlikely. And and that that's quite a plausible, plausible explanation. He thought thought he might have just taken a lame step, which caused him to stumble and really banged himself after that, after that second last. Yeah, it's it's one that I certainly hadn't thought of, um, Nick. People were talking about, you know, had the horse got tired and tripped over himself, or had he just put in a in a divot, but what Nicky has come up with does make sense, and it, in some ways it only adds to the sense of um, injustice that poor old Shishkin on this occasion was robbed by ill fortune, not his own uh, naughtiness. Um, I think he would have won the King George. Tom and I had a, a good debate on the pod the day after. I think he would have beaten him. I think he'd have finished further away from Brave Man's game and Alaho than he was at the second last oh, fence. I, I, I think he was just getting going, to be honest. Yeah, and I, I, if you look at Shishkin's races, that is what he does. For all his uh, his quirks, uh, even in the Ryanair chase last season, when he, he wasn't on a going day, Nicola Boyle felt him shrink beneath him in the paddock before the race, he still finished that race off. I think he was, as you say, Nick, I think he was getting going at, at Kempton. I think he would have won the King George. Do I think he'll win a Cheltenham Gold Cup? Well, what Gallopin de Chon did uh, at Leopardstown the other day doesn't boost confidence but it still remains the case that if Shishkin goes into the Gold Cup he will be one of the most fascinating runners mm -hmm. in the race mm. yes he's got to start he's got to finish <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then we'll see what happens a big vote of confidence there in James Bowen uh, and Nicky Henderson probably did not want to do his first broadcast interview of 2024 talking about whether or not Constitution Hill was going to run in any given race. But it doesn't sound like it's completely nailed on he goes to trials day. No, I mean, we all hope he does um, because it, it looks uh, it looks an obvious race. Well, it is an obvious race for him. When uh, I was involved in the process, this race was moved from uh, the December meeting here, the mid-December meeting to Festival Trials Day. It was with the hope that it would provide a more obvious vehicle for the top hurdlers in Britain and maybe even in Ireland to have a run at Cheltenham before the festival. Um, and Nicky has sounded keen to run Constitution Hill in the race. Um, but we, we, have, we know historically um, that Nicky is cautious when it comes to running 
his best horses on deep ground before the Cheltenham Festival. I'm sure conditions will be in his head as he moves towards International Hurdle Day. You suspect that if he does run the race, Nick, he will frighten the rest off. So the, the competitiveness of that race could depend on Constitution Hill's participation. So one thing I do suspect is that Cheltenham and the sponsors hope that connections are relatively clear some way out as to their thinking. Uh, but and, and as, I, as I said, I mean the, the warmth so evident there from from Nicky Henderson towards towards James Bowen and uh, hanging on to him for the last few years has been has probably been quite tricky actually and and it, but it, but very important. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. And, and didn't he have a good day on Saturday at Newbury? Um, three winners. I spoke to him after the the first race, which he won for Nicky on Spring Note, um, and I was blown away by how calm relaxed completely un, unflustered he was by what was a big shift for James Bowen it, it worked out very well for him particularly winning on Jericho de Repinay. um and to have that sort of quality as your deputy is a massive thing um for seven barrows but one thing I think as well that's that's worth highlighting is that Nicky is famously loyal his jockeys. I remember interviewing him just over a year ago now and talking about how with Nico de Boinville he was well aware that it wasn't easy for him that he didn't ride all the horses in the yard and that he was incredibly uh, admiring and affectionate towards both Nico and James Bowen. So I think it's it, it was already likely that if Constitution Hill and John Bond got to targets in January and Nico wasn't available uh, and Aidan Coburn wasn't available for John Bond, that James Bowen would be the likely man to to sit in those seats. It's encouraging that Nicky has said it, and it underlines the the, the team ethos within Seven Barrows. Um, just going back to where we began uh, this conversation today, Lee, and just a few little bits and pieces that have come out of the Christmas period. I, I think a lot of racecourses will be very pleased with attendance figures they've recorded. You mentioned Market Raisin and Weatherby. Uh, and, and others who have done well. We, we, we've talked about Kempton a lot on this podcast and you've talked yeah. about it again on, in your column today. Are there reasons to suggest that what appeared to be a disappointing attendance on Boxing Day might not have been quite as disappointing as it first looked, given the, the way that we collect data now relative to how we used to? Well, certainly that is the line that the jockey club is passing on the jockey club doesn't want to get into an on the record public commentary about attendance figures at Kempton um, but it was interesting that in um, background uh, information given on Boxing Day and thereafter they have stressed that paid attendance at Kempton on Boxing Day was virtually in line with the uh, same paid attendance um, for Kempton pre-COVID. Now, in some ways, that doesn't make sense because as I, I reference again the column today, if you look at the last four years pre-COVID, attendances were um, between uh, around uh, 17,000 and 21,000, whereas for the last three years, the attendance has been 11,000. Now, the way in which uh, comp attendances, if you like, so uh, owners and trainers, uh, those on free tickets, uh, media, etc. Those figures 
were previously estimated. And that was the case at a lot of race courses. And race courses across the board are now uh, much more detailed and specific in giving attendance figures. However, although that is the, the explanation that the Jockey Club is giving behind the scenes, I think it remains the case that people will raise eyebrows if they think that for some reason attendances pre-COVID at Kempton on Boxing Day were somehow between six and 10,000 people wrong yeah. in those years. You can estimate, Nick, and we, we've all done estimates in the past, but to estimate something wrong by 40% is pretty remarkable. So I think if that is the case, and um, then that almost becomes a story in itself. And it's still, though, the case, Nick, that even if that was right and that the, 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 these estimates um, pre-COVID were wide of the mark, it's odd that at sister race courses, when Canton and Market Raisin, their post-COVID attendances have been very strong and healthy compared to pre-COVID. Same at Weatherby. Ascot had a record attendance um, on Long Walk Hurdle Day, and that is includes pre-COVID, when, again, attendances were measured maybe in a looser way than they are now, seemingly. So I still think there are legitimate questions yeah. to ask how the numbers going to Kempton, and even the Jockey Club haven't questioned the criticism that has been levelled by myself, by Dave Yates on this pod, and by others, that the experience of going to Kempton is not befitting of um, one of the great events in this sport. I made the comparison in the column that I've been to ask on what hurdle day. It was like shopping in Fortnum and Mason. Kempton on Boxing Day was more like a little Aldi or Iceland. No disrespect intended to those stores, many of which I do frequent. I feel I feel that poor old Kempton have had an absolute bath battery over the over the last few days but they're all points that i've raised on here uh and indeed raised before in fact i think i wrote a column yeah. in about this about two years ago but um, yeah I, anyway yeah, that, that's on, on right, get, I, I just i, I want to lydia, lydia retweeted a um uh a, a bit from a, a a listener and a, a correspondent andy mugridge <clears throat> who who tweeted went to Newbury yesterday with my daughter and son-in-law and four grandchildren 60 quid for three adults children were all free daughter took some sweets and snacks for kids to eat the woman at the gate searched her bag and said if it was sandwiches she would have had to confiscate them this is becoming quite a, a common theme the uh, the confiscation of food going into to race courses now if you're going with children uh, there might be nothing that your children want to eat at the races, and if you want to get the family involved, I think you've. Got, I understand why racecourses don't want to compromise their their food and beverage bottom line, but you've got to you've got to employ, employ a little bit of common sense here, haven't you? If people want to take in a pack of sandwiches, then shouldn't they be allowed to? Absolutely, they should, Nick. Um, you look at the price of um, food and beverage options on on some racecourses. Um, you look at the quality of food and beverage on some race courses. Now, in some places, you'll get fantastic food options. Uh, I was a judge for the RCA Showcase Awards, and we were blown away, for example, by what Musselburgh um, now does with um, a local deli uh, facility on uh, the race course there. That'll be an operation show again today for its Fogmanet fixture, and it will be marvellous. But at a lot of tracks, you would walk around and you think there is very little I want to eat here, and what there is is overpriced at certain tracks anyway. Um, and I think it's therefore entirely reasonable, particularly at a time when racecourses are talking about how the cost of living crisis 
is hitting attendances. At that sort of time, people might want to come racing, but they might say to themselves, well, if, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to fork out on the attendance figure, I at least need to save money by bringing my own sandwiches, bit of fruit, slice of cake, whatever. I think if that is the case, then certainly in the current environment, it is common sense and logical for racecourses to bend their own rules, look at the bigger picture and give people a helping hand. Now, it's been a great pleasure through the final months of 2023 to bring you our series on equine nutrition in the company of two of the most eminent practitioners in that sphere in the world. Uh, Dr. Joe Pagan, who is Kentucky Equine Research's uh, founding father, and Polly Bonner, who's the director of uh, Thoroughbred Nutrition at Saracen Horse Feeds. Uh, today, we're going to talk, as we come into folding season, uh, about how we might best look after our, our mares in the final uh, weeks of their pregnancy cycle and how best then they are going to produce the strongest, healthiest and robust foals that they are going to be able to feed to the best of, of their ability. Um, Joe, perhaps we can we can start with you and, and maybe talk a little bit about the the physiology of a, of, of a pregnant mare and, and, and what 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 we, we need to give them to, to compensate for what they're having to go through. Sure, sure. Well, one thing that's very important to understand is that fetal growth is not linear in foals. It doesn't grow at exactly the same amount month after month. In fact, after seven months of pregnancy, the fetus is only 20% of its birth weight. So that means that that fetus is going to be growing 80% of its size in just the last four months. Wow. So that really hones in on the last trimester being the most important part nutritionally. So during that time, we want to focus on some very specific nutrients. We've learned that providing adequate amounts of trace minerals, particularly copper and zinc, is very important that you feed the mare at that time because the fetus needs to store those minerals in its body before it's born. Uh, because once it's born, those minerals aren't in adequate supply in just milk. So one strategy is to make sure that we have adequate trace mineral nutrition during that last trimester. That's absolutely fascinating. How, how did you discover that? How was that discovered and established? That was discovered by a very good researcher in Germany named Helmut Meyer, where they looked at fetal growth over time to see how big the, the fetus was. There was uh, subsequent studies that were done in New Zealand where they looked at how well storing these trace minerals in the fetus affected subsequent skeletal soundness in foals. So there's been a couple of studies, a number of studies through the years to establish that those two things are important. Uh, um, Polly, your experience will tell you just how important this this period is uh, and, and how uh, brood mares and particularly thoroughbred brood mares are, are looked after at this stage of their of their life is is paramount um can you identify with with what joe is saying and give us sort of your practical application of that completely and our focus a lot of the time now is feeding them to achieve or maintain an ideal body weight um we're quite focused on that <laughs> particularly where weather patterns this year have meant that the grass growth has been so high right the way through. So, for example, if you have um, a filly that's been retired from racing and has come off the track, 
we're probably going to need a higher plane of nutrition for her mm-hmm. than most established broodmares, you know, to prepare her for the breeding season. But one thing that we are quite um, fixed on is recommending regular assessments of a mare's body condition and her her actual weight because then it allows for any dietary modifications that we need to make and as I say this year has been unusual for the amount of grass that has grown all year long because of all the rainfall and the amount of grass that's still out in the paddocks now I mean it's ridiculously mild out there considering we're only a few days away from Christmas Mm. It really is. Do you find in your experience that broodmares behaviour changes significantly during this this last trimester? And if so, does then that impact on how efficiently they feed themselves? Um, I think generally speaking, when they're out in their paddock groups, they've buddied up with their friends, you hope. That's one of the things that we're trying to do with fillies off the track, make sure that they've got a buddy that keeps them calm. Sometimes that change in routine is quite a big deal for a horse who's basically been used to doing a lot of exercise and, you know, been in a racing routine to then be turned out at grass. So I guess there's a behavioural element there. But most of the time now, they'll have been grouped appropriately so that the pecking order within the paddock has already been established. You're always going to have, you know, the boss mare. And so you're just trying to make sure that that paddock group makes sense so that everybody is getting their fair share. And the old saying about eating for two, Joe, is there any is there any science behind that? Or should should broodmares just eat fairly normally, but with those added minerals that you were talking about? Yeah, the the trick, Nick, really is to make sure that the amount of supplemental feed we give the mare is in sync with how much she's getting from pasture. Because broodmares, one thing they're great at doing is eating grass. And while the amount of these trace minerals that we're giving are a finite amount per day, we want to avoid the mare getting too much energy and protein during late pregnancy. Because we've identified now that that the very large foal is not necessarily a good thing. And we've seen sometimes that that occurs when there's a mismatch between the amount of forage available and the amount of supplemental feed. So we're asking breeders to try to take a little more of a a measured approach to make sure that if they're getting a lot of calories from their feet, from their forage, that they need to adjust the amount that they're supplementally getting to match the amount for the broodmare, but at the same time, ensure that they continue to get those trace minerals that are so important. And those aren't really all that high in the pasture. So that's something you do need to supplement. And even if you've got very good pasture for your mares. And what do you need to be watchful for at the point of um, delivery at the point when the, when the, the, the foal is born, what do you need to be vigilant about from a nutritional standpoint? Well, I don't think you want to have the, the the mares in too great a body condition. I think you want to make sure that they're they're born in a in a good sound body condition, but not overweight, because it seems like it's those overweight mares that tend to have the biggest problem. Polly, do you want to add to that? Yeah. 
I mean, obviously, as their pregnancies progress and they gain weight, they're effectively loading their skeleton and their muscular system. So foaling a fat mare isn't fun. You ask any um, broodmare manager. And obviously, there's health implications aside from that. And excessive body condition can impact her fertility when you're trying to breed her back as well. So what we're trying to do, as Joe said, is give them the best chance of producing a healthy foal without any skeletal issues. And body weight at both ends really does matter in that. And we're understanding that more and more, particularly with the work that Joe has been doing, looking at birth month and available forage and balancing that out appropriately. There has, I think, been um, a tendency for farms to perhaps start feeding all of the mares, regardless of birth month, at a certain level, and then continuing on with that, even for the ones that are actually going to foal in April or May, when, of course, usually there's some better weather, some grasses coming through, and as Joe rightly says, we don't need too much body weight on their frames at that point. Fine-tuning is what it's all about. Joe, your, your research has told you many important things if if you were to design the optimal birth date for your foal in the northern hemisphere, what would it be? Uh, February or March. Okay, and why? Um, it seems like for all the data that we have collected, that's a time when there's the greatest soundness, the least amount of skeletal disease. And the uh, overall racing performance seems to be as well. So in all of the studies we've done, they've kind of come back into that middle time, not too early, not too late, sometimes sort of in that season. I may have said before that that later would have been better. You would think that might have been a little more natural. But our data is showing that actually a February, March foal is not a bad thing. Mm. Um, thank you both very much. I think next time we're going to explore feeding the foals themselves and how they get the best start in life. But um, for the moment, Dr. Joe Pagan, Polly Bonner, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you, Nick. All right. Thanks to, to Joe uh, and to Polly for their latest installment. We'll be back with them later this month. Uh, Lee Mosshead is still with me. I've enjoyed this New Year's Day episode. I feel quite chipper and upbeat, Lee, even though we've, yeah. uh, you know, as usual, uh, try to pour over some of the things that are, are less than satisfactory. Um, a couple of good news stories to finish off with. Felix de Giles has ended the year as champion jockey in France, which is no mean achievement for a British rider. And in, indeed, he he's clear of James Reevely, another another ex-Brit, or another Brit, riding in France. Um, 92 winners Felix has ridden uh, to, to crown him champion. It's a lovely piece that um, Scott Burton, uh, your France correspondent, has written in today's Racing Post. Yeah, and it really is a great achievement. Um, Felix went out there some time ago now. He's made it his home. He has made a tremendous success of it. Anyone who um, follows jumping in France, it's, it's very different in many ways to, to jumping over here. Uh, different obstacles, different race styles, different, different race program as well. Felix has mastered all those, as has James Reevely, and it is great credit to him that he is champion of the country. All righty. And another... Um... A quite interesting piece of news. We're going to be talking to a uh, prominent American owner and entrepreneur, Mike Rapoli, on, on, on the podcast later this week. But uh, he has um, put forward quite an interesting uh, incentive for owners to contribute to the 
uh, thoroughbred aftercare alliance in the in the us just um flesh this out for me yeah so um Nick, mike is going to um basically match uh, donations um to the uh the charity to the service um and as we all know there is no bigger issue in horse racing than equine welfare and that is one issue that applies to all racing jurisdictions wherever you go we, we've all got our own problems our own our own difficulties but equine welfare is a thing that unites everybody we need to we need to find better uh, ways of looking after horses as they leave the industry and what mike is doing is seeking to help with that um right i just need a tip for you for today uh i was torn nick i was torn between bob ollinger in the Relkeel hurdle um and cloudy glen in the long distance handicap chase but bob is quite a short price i'm trying to be bold it's new year's day i think cloudy glen nick is a horse who loves the sort of ground we're going to get here today he's run two good races this season i can find flaws in his four rivals so i'm tipping cloudy glen to win the 130 at cheltenham now i'm ashamed to say i haven't been to cheltenham on new year's day for quite a few years now um i think I think my memory of it is slightly scarred by the fact that the final Cheltenham uh, I did for Channel 4 Racing, which was 2016, I think it was, New Year's Day, uh, my generous bosses at the time said that I'd been doing a lot of driving during the course of the, the previous couple of weeks. And I've been going here, there and everywhere because yeah, you were working every day on a different race course. And, um, you know, they were yeah, concerned, blah, 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 New Year's Day. Should I... You know, they 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 would kindly uh, get me driven to Cheltenham, which was not you know not not something you'd be accustomed to, but it was very very sweet of them. And um, I said, well, that's very kind. Anyway, this guy turned up at my house, and he was clearly absolutely exhausted. He'd been up all night, and um, it was it's quite quite a scary experience. And I, we we stopped. I I offered to get him a coffee because I was a bit worried that he was falling asleep. So we stopped in at a BP garage on the A40, and I bought him and I both a coffee and a bought copy of the Racing Post. So I'm sitting in the in the car with a, a copy of the Racing Post and a cup of coffee. The next thing I knew, I was upside down in the footwell uh, with the Racing Post on top of me, wearing the cup of coffee because he'd fallen asleep on the A40 and it, it, it just it just jammed on, just woken up when he was about three millimeters from a white van in front of him and jammed the brakes on very hard. Um, slightly shaky experience, which has sort of left negative connotations about going to going to Cheltenham on New Year's Day ever since, really. Very stupid, I know, but I thought you'd enjoy that. My goodness, Dick. I, 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 I've not heard that story before. That is, a, that is your, that was your brush with, um, well... Well, with, been a, with, with, yeah, there might have been a couple, but yeah, that was a that was one that sticks in the mind anyway. Well, so, please, happy New Year, report, everyone! Yeah, please. My passage up the A40 was completely safe and serene this morning. Uh, excellent. I'm delighted to hear it, uh, and that'll serve me right for uh, not actually getting in the car and driving myself. Anyway, um, thank you very much. Thank you for all your help with the podcast over the last uh, year. Uh, well, for more than the last year, but look forward to many more of these in the next 12 months. Lee, thank Absolutely. you. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Nikki Henderson and to Sam Bullard and to, to Joe Pagan and Polly Bonner. Uh, we will be back uh, tomorrow, of course. Um, that was Monday, the 1st of January, 2024. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily. Brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.